It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Odyssey Sports presents Big Time Baseball with MLB insider John Heyman and former Major Leaguer Tony Gwynn Jr. I'm very pleased and privileged to bring in our guest for today, uh, Billy Bean, uh, who is uh, has been the general manager of the A's since 1997. That's probably not his exact title. We'll have to get that right now. But uh, he's in charge of the Oakland A's and has the A's in first place once again. Um, is a team that uh, on a small market budget uh, since 2000, uh, they've won 90 plus games 11 times, despite having a payroll that's in the bottom, uh, say 10%, 20%, almost every single year. So really done an incredible job. Five-time executive of the year, three times sporting news, two times baseball America, and they're all different years. So, Five different years he's won executive of the year. So uh, Billy being a legendary uh, baseball executive and uh, future Hall of Famer, welcome to our show. Hey, John. Yeah, no, good to, good to speak with you, and thanks for the introduction. I'm, uh, uh, you made me sound a lot uh, better than I really am, so thanks for that. And uh, hello to Tony. <laughs> hello to Tony as well. And I, before we did this podcast, John, I was trying to remember when you and I first started our careers when I stopped playing and you were still covering the beat. So we both go back to quite a long ways. Uh, it's uh, been quite a ways. Yes. I'm a little older than you, but uh, you, you're, you've always had that youthful appearance too. So you have that going yeah. for you, but uh, it's been, it's been, it's been quite a while back to the eighties sometimes. So I really appreciate you joining it. And we do call it the big time podcast. So we pride ourselves on getting big time guests and this is one of our biggest. So I really appreciate you joining us. And the first thing I have to ask is, as Tony knows and Dylan, our producer, knows, uh, when we had our prediction show, uh, I confidently predicted the A's to win the uh, AL West uh, based on your history, even though you'd lost Semyon and Hendricks and Stella and many, many others. Um, now, you've seen the team play uh, 20-some-odd games, obviously rough start, uh, fantastic 13-game winning streak, and you are in first place, just as I predicted, uh, so make me feel better. Uh, is my prediction going to be right? You feel pretty good about your team? Uh, you know, I've always said, yeah, uh, well, I feel good about it now. If you would have checked with me, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the first six or seven games, you know, ironically, um, uh, I was actually in Hawaii for the first, uh, for, uh, for the beginning of the season, we had a long planned trip with the family and my oldest daughter we hadn't seen since the pandemic. So we all went there. So I was there for the first yeah, first eight games because we were one in seven when I was there. So uh, immediately upon landing back on the mainland, uh, we reeled off 13 and since then we're now 14 and one. So I'm going to take full credit for my uh, continental leadership. Uh, but as far as the club, listen, I think there was a combination of factors at the beginning as to why we started poorly. We played really 
uh, really bad. And, and uh, we were after, I think those first eight games we were 15th in pitching and 15th in hitting, which uh, I'm surprised we won one game with those numbers. And uh, so we played poorly and we also played two really good teams. I mean, Houston at that time was full strength. Uh, they came in and just boat raced us in Oakland. And then we, uh, we, played the Dodgers uh, and we won one out of three in those games. But uh, so a combination of those two things is, I think, part of the reason for the start. And then, you know, then we kind of righted the ship. The guys didn't panic. There's a lot of guys here who've, you know, been with this team since it's been successful. So I don't think there's a real panic and, and we have righted the ship, you know, uh, you know, well, I, listen, I don't think we're a one in seven team and I'm not sure we're a 13 and O team. I think we're, you know, probably somewhere, slightly on the, the good side of that. And, uh, and I think, you know, if we stay healthy, we should compete for the rest of the season. That being said, you know, I, I was watching the highlights this morning and, you know, I, I mean, you know, we all know about Houston and Seattle's playing great with young players. And then you look at angels, every time I look at that lineup with Otani and trout and then Rendon coming back, I just think any day that they're going to just, it's just all going to click for them. So I think it's going to be a, a real battle the whole season. Billy, you've been at the forefront of the analytic era since early 2000s, but it seems like in the last, I don't know, six, five, six years, you guys have found uh, some consistency there. What has changed in terms of not having the huge drop-offs from year to year mm -hmm. that you guys may have had in the early uh, part of the 2000s to where now it seems like you guys are consistently a team that is, is a problem in the, in the American League West? Yeah, well, I, well, first of all, uh, I, you know, there's so many teams, so many smart teams. Uh, so I think it's, it, you know, from where when I started, you know, to the group of people running teams right now, there's just some really, really bright front offices. And, and so it's very, very competitive. So I'm, I'm proud of what we've been able to do, particularly the last, you know, the decade. Uh, but I think for us is that, you know, we're, I, what I call what we're what I call a transactional organization. You know, we've never been a an organization that when we hit a sort of a down cycle, we've never been one that says like, Hey, we're going to take five years to rebuild. We, we think, you know, running a major league team, every single win is, is important. You know, people that buy tickets and I, I don't necessarily think the fans in the Bay area want to hear us no matter what our payroll is like, Hey, you know, check with us in five years. We think we're going to be a good team. So we've always taken advantage, tried to take advantage of every year. And quite frankly, uh, tried to uh, make as many sort of trades and small transactions as we possibly can and, and just not give away any season. It's, I think it's in our nature. We're very competitive. I'm pretty old at this point now, guys. So the idea of going through five <laughs> that uh, attracted me, Bobby Melvin and me and Bobby are the same age. He's been here over a decade. I think he's the longest tenured manager. So for us, Tony, it's just a matter of, you know, really not giving away any game or any season. And sometimes good things happen. Uh, and again, it's very competitive. The, the group of uh, people that you're competing against in the front office now are and they're just really, really bright. So uh, it, it gets tougher and tougher every year. Yeah, I really appreciate that. You don't give away any season, even with that minuscule payroll. We, in New York, we look at that as minuscule. Maybe you have a better word for it, but you've had a very small payroll uh, for a long time now. I, I mean, you and I can remember when the A's had one of the biggest payrolls, but certainly in the last uh, most of the last three decades, you've had one of the smallest ones, and yet you've been able to win. And uh, as I said, I appreciate you're not giving away any seasons. One thing I was interested about, and I'm going to bring up Moneyball here, which is was fantastic book and a good movie as well. Um, one thing, and I've never really asked you this, 
is were you concerned about giving away any secrets there? And, and do you feel like teams picked up on some of the things that were in the Moneyball book? And, um, you know, which teams can you learn from? You mentioned there were smart teams, and I'm sure there are teams that learn from you and you learn from other teams. But did you feel that you gave away any secrets there and, and uh, lost a little bit of a competitive edge? Or is it the game always evolving so that it really didn't feel that way to you? Yeah, it's a good question, John. One of the first questions, you know, when the book came out, I mean, and, and still, you know, to this day, I get that question. You know, we didn't really feel like we gave away any secrets because the dirty little secret was, you know, most of the stuff that was in the book and the stuff that we were doing, we just basically took those ideas from guys like Bill James and sort of Pete Palmer, Saber Matricians, people have been doing it for a long, long time. And it was all public information. Uh, so any, you know, again, it wasn't something we created, we didn't invent, we just I think we're one of the first teams to sort of ruthlessly implement some of the ideas of Bill James. But again, we didn't, we didn't create that. What ended up happening after the book came out was I think it, the book probably sped up the revolution in terms of analytics, but by no means, you know, was it, you know, was it anything, any proprietary that we we're going to build any secret. I think what happened after the book and you saw over the next decade, even see now is that teams started you know, hiring a bunch of really smart guys and, and they actually did create their own proprietary analytics and they did keep them secret. And so uh, that's what you have right now. I mean, you have, uh, you know, each front office has their own system of evaluating players using data that's, you know, distributed to us from MLB. Uh, but I don't think the book, again, you know, again, I always just say this, we didn't really invent anything with a book. We just stole really good ideas from, from Bill James and, and the like. <laughs> And we kind of had a platform that we could uh, do them. I mean, you know, we could use them. Uh, you know, when you're in New York, John, you know, I mean, you've covered Brian there for years. The idea that Brian would have been the first, and by the way, Brian was one of the first out of the gate, certainly, but to be the first guy out of the gate in a in a place like New York would have been very, very challenging with all the noise and the pushback that you would have uh, received there. Oakland, we had, a, again, we had a really good platform. Nobody expected much from us, so we could be a little more creative than most other people. But again, I always said we didn't, we didn't, uh, we didn't invent anything other than using it. Uh, we, again, those were ideas we stole from Bill James and the really the next generation, the group of executives that came in and I'd like to think we we're, uh, were doing the same thing, started creating their own proprietary analytics platforms and, and they, they were smart enough not to you know, write books or have people write books about them. Now, now Billy, now inevitably in baseball, there is always it's a copycat league. There's some success had and then a lot of teams will try it and it's almost like an overcorrection of it. And then it kind of comes back a little bit. Do you think we're starting to see that in terms of analytics and how it's used on the field? Yeah, I think that's been the next, you know, the most recent revolution, Tony, is that you have now you have a whole generation of field personnel and coaches and that have sort of come up with the idea that they're, you know, using analytics uh, to evaluate players and then ultimately to, and how to play the game. So, I mean, you look at, you take a guy like, like say Mark Kotze, who I know, you know, yes. you know Mark, uh, you know, he just, he, I would call him a modern day player. You know, he came up, I mean, when he was drafted, Mark was drafted in 1996, I believe out of Fullerton and, um, and, you know, he came up when analytics as a player really started to come into play. In fact, we traded for him really pretty much based on his very good analytics, particularly defensively. But as a off the field guy, he's since he's become a coach, he's been immersed in analytics and all these platforms. And now 
you know, as part of a coaching staff that utilizes it, he's very much first. And there's a lot of synergies, which really there was a real dichotomy between how front offices were doing things and how field personnel were doing right when the book came out. And it created a lot of friction. And, and now you actually have, I think what you have, and I think Tony, the point you're trying to make is that, you know, the one thing about, and I found this out myself, is when you first start doing something, you, you know, you kind of, you kind of pat yourself on the back. You think you have all the answers. Right, right. You get a little, you get a little, you get a little, I guess there's a certain amount of hubris and arrogance that uh, becomes part of how you do things. And, and you learn that that's just the, the fact of the matter is, is every generation has something to add. Right. And, you know, listen, there's experiences as a player that I can give to my, say, data analyst that that and you know too you've been in a room too tony where you there's things you experience as a player that analytics just can't describe and you know i've said this to my guys you know when you i no longer i try not to take for granted when a young man goes up to the plate in his first major league at bat or he's pitching his first major league game you know, and, and people don't understand, well, why isn't he, didn't he do this as first at bat? You have, people have no idea what's going through your head, you know, when you walk into Shea Stadium or you, you walk into Dodger Stadium for your first major league at bat, it, it completely changes the equation. And right. that's something only somebody who's experienced it can, uh, you know, add to the conversation. So I think what you have now is, listen, you know, somebody who's been in the game 50 years, when he has an opinion, that's a data point. And right. I think early on in the process, people dismissed that, like that that wasn't objective information. Well, the fact of the matter is it's a data point. It means something and should be factored into the decision-making process. You mentioned that uh, not, many, <clears throat> not many people have uh, experienced uh, major league play. Now, you were a first-round pick of the Mets, and um, I think you were picked somewhere in the 20s, 23rd maybe. And I think Strawberry was picked first that year, but you, you might have even gotten higher uh, had folks not realized you had, there was a chance to sign you because Stanford wanted you as a football and baseball player, which is a uh, pretty, pretty exciting uh, possibility as well. You ultimately decided to sign with the Mets. Um, I think they paid you somewhere around $125,000 and you, you decided to do that and um, try your hand at, at playing baseball um, now that you're, you know, a legendary executive, uh, how would you evaluate? It seemed to me like you had terrific talent uh, or people thought you did and you didn't, you made it to the major leagues. So that's something most draft choices don't make. Even first rounders, it's only 50-50 at that time to make it to the majors. So you did make it to the majors, but you didn't become a star. And I looked at your, your Wikipedia and mentioned that uh, Lenny Dykstra was an early roommate of yours and i don't know whether this is fair in wikipedia to say that dykstra had superior mental focus over you uh to me that's stunning knowing the two people involved in that uh, you're you're one of the smartest people i know and uh, i mean dykstra certainly uh i guess could be considered smart as a ball player but uh what do you think about that uh, analysis that he had superior mental focus and, um, you know, how do you look back at your career now that you have evaluated tons of players? Is there something you could have done differently or something you evaluate as a ball player? Yeah, no. And it's a, you know, I might change that word focus. I might say Lenny had the perfect, I think, baseball player mentality. And in that, listen, he had superior self-confidence. 
Uh, yeah. He, it, I mean, he, I honestly, I remember, you know, we played against each other or played with each other for years and, and listen, having, you know, there's just some people who are built for the grind of being a, a major league baseball player. Lenny certainly was. I'll give you an example. And I think, you know, like, I remember like even the minor leagues, you know, and, and Tony, you can probably relate to this is like, listen, when I was, when I was two for two in a game, I remember I, I used to go, well, Hey, listen, it's, this could be, this is at worst is going to be a pretty good day. I'm going to at least go two for four. Right. Uh, Lenny was on the, a different when Lenny was two for two, he wanted to go four for four. Right. And, 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 and he thought he was going to. So for me, I was like, Hey, this is great. Two for four. He was, <laughs> he was a statistical machine. And then on the flip side too, is if, and Tony, chime in too, because I'm sure you can relate. You know, you're sitting, you have those games, you're up there, you're on deck, you're 0 for 4, you got three punch outs, and you're going, I really don't need this. I don't want this fifth at bat, right? So no doubt. Take no doubt. In. And you just don't, you don't really just like, hey, listen, that's it. I don't need any more, you know, abuse today. <laughs> Lenny was different. When Lenny was 0 for 4, he was dying to get that fifth at bat because he might take a walk. He was going to steal a base and he's going to score a run. So somewhere he was going to check some boxes. And at the end of the year, he just accumulated as, a, as an offensive player. So many things with that mentality. And if he was 0 for 2, he wanted two more bats because he was going to go two for four. And, and, and again, it was just really, really unique. And it was legitimate self-confidence that he was going to you know, be successful. And listen, every single day, but that's one thing about baseball. And that's how, you know, going back to my own career is like, I was a better athlete than I was a baseball player, which I think helped me as an executive is one of the things I think that we started doing. And I think the game now appreciates is, is the skill that it takes to be a good baseball player, right? I mean, it's, it's not just an athletic sport. It's, it's, it's also an athletic sport and a skilled sport. And I think for years, the skill was really unrecognized. And I'll give you a great example. I mean, our own, like Jed Lowry, right? John, who we you know, had, yep. had a tough couple of years. And even as people who followed Jed's career, he, he, he was never like a, you know, just a raw, you know, athlete. He wasn't a great runner. He didn't have particularly say great range, but he was very sure-handed. And, you know, the perception is, as you get older, well, he's going to get worse and worse. But what Jed has is a, a skill at the plate. He has a contact skill. And he understands the strike zone. And those skills age really, really well. Athleticists yeah. like me, I mean, and Tony, Tony <laughs> chime in too. Listen, if you're running, you know, if you're running a 6360 out of high school, you know, by the time you fill out to about 225 and you're 27, 28, you're probably not running that 6'3. It's pretty tough. Very few guys can maintain mm -hmm. that sort of speed. But the skill, like a skill of a like like what Jed Lowry brings to the table, you know, even, you know. Uh, Tony's father. I mean, he just ha he has a skill that ages ages well. You know, the ability to contact that's such an important part of the game. And and for me, I didn't have that skill. And uh, and again, and also the mentality too. Listen, if I was zero for four, it was like you know, <laughs> I, I was wearing it the next day too. And it, it's just hard to do in this game and be successful. Yeah. That's 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 so fascinating to me, Billy, because I, that's something that I had to develop across uh, during my career in terms of the mindset of you know, 0 for 4, wanting that, that extra bat, that extra bat, 2 for 2, wanting to go for 4 for 4 now. In your position now, that's, I, I think that's part of the makeup. Is, is that something that you evaluate when you are drafting a kid and you bring them in and you're bringing them into your organization? No question. In fact, yeah, I remember, and again, you know, when you're, when you're in a locker room, 
you kind of know when you're coming up to the minor leagues, you know, you have guys who are in the draft in the first round and, and, or second round, they're high picks. And you're kind of wondering like, what did the organization see in this guy? Right. Right, right. <laughs> And then you have guys who are drafting the 10th round who just have it, right. They've got that, like they're winners, right. Uh, one of the guys that comes to mind is like, is a, a player here in <laughs> Oakland was a guy like Timmy Hudson. Right. You know, so Hudson, you know, he's about five foot 11, you know, skinny kid. But if you sort of looked at his resume, he played at SEC school. He was an all conference DH along with being a pitcher. And then when we drafted him as a senior, by the way, we drafted him what the, I think we got Tim in the fifth round, maybe. Wow. But when you went in the clubhouse, Hudson, you know, you look at the card game, Tim Hudson was winning the card game. If you you look at the ping pong table, Tim Hudson was winning. It was, it was sort of, he had that, he sort of had that. And, and we've been around guys like that, where guys who they win at everything they do. And, you know, to me, that's sort of part of the makeup and part of the competitiveness. And, and then the flip side, you see guys who are, you know, you know, like you said, that, that sort of maybe a first round pick, and then you're around them and you realize, listen, there's just something missing that is, you know, going to, you know, probably be a barrier to them being as successful as they probably should be. But uh, you get in the clubhouse, you really become sort of very Darwinian. And, you know, there are guys who just figure out a way to get it done, not just on the field, but off the field as well. With And they're very competitive people. I mean, like Hudson, I mean, you know, he, he, just everything he did, he was good. And again, that's part of the makeup. And there's a lot of guys like through the years in Oakland that were like that uh, for me. Uh, you know what I want to ask you about, Billy? Um is the Oakland A's, um, excuse me, um, you know, when you, you were a player there at the end and of your career and then you became the advanced scout, obviously they were, you know, they had Ken Seiko, McGuire, um, Dave Stewart, and at some point they had so many good players that they had, if not the highest payroll in baseball, one of the highest payrolls. Uh, now, since you've been GM, uh, you know, they've had one of the lowest payrolls in baseball, uh, how do you how do you square this? What happened there exactly where the Oakland A's can't afford to have a, a higher payroll than the bottom? Now, obviously, you're sharing a market with a bigger team in a bigger city. Uh, I get that part of it. You know, you've got an older stadium. Um, but, you know, it seems like the A's are ever tightening the belt even further. I mean, you didn't sign any of the free agents you had this year. Um, you know, your payroll seems to be going down. Um, you know, I wanted to ask you basically about the future of the A's. Of course, part of that is the stadium. Is there going to be a stadium? Is it going to be in Oakland? And also your future, because there were rumors or thoughts that perhaps you'll be part of an ownership entity elsewhere. Now, you are part owner of the A's, a small part, but that was the rumor, at least in the winter, and you're still here with the A's doing your usual great stuff with the A's. But just about your future and the team's future and, and, and why the A's now have the lowest or one of the lowest payrolls when they had the highest payroll 30 years ago. Yeah. And uh, well, we'll start with that, John. Yeah. When I was playing here in 89, my last year playing, actually I was in spring training in 90. So we actually mm-hmm. going through up till about 95 when the Haas family owned the team, mm-hmm. we had one of the top, it was us, basically it was us in Toronto uh, were the top two payrolls during <laughs> that time period. And, you know, and also we were two of the best teams, too. There was a real direct correlation between how much you spent on your team and how many games you won. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, but it was also a time that, you know, the game was really starting to change, too, is that's when new stadiums started to come into play. 
you know, when you think about the new stadiums that were introduced uh, during the 90s, and there's been, there was a number of them. And at that time, you know, the A Stadium was still just a, a number of stadiums were like Oakland, where they were not new. Uh, but as time sort of went on, you know, we became one of the only teams without a new stadium, or at least one that was soon to be built, which is kind of where we are now. In fact, there's been a number of teams who've had two stadiums since uh, I've been doing this job, Atlanta and Texas come to mind that are two teams that have had two stadiums since uh, mm. we still yet to get one. So wow. you really started to, the, the Haas family sold the club. And one of the reasons, and, and they did, you know, put a lot of money into the club, but also understand too, during those nineties, I believe we had the highest payroll in the early nineties and we were somewhere in the low forties. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, to tell you how far it's come. Uh, but we're also an organization too, despite our success, we were losing, we were losing, we started to lose quite a bit of money there the last couple of years, the Haas family, and they, they had to sell. And, uh, you know, uh, Steve Schott and Ken Hoffman, I mean, they, they got a lot of grief because they brought the payroll down, uh, you know, from where it was. But the fact of the matter is, is it, it needed to be done because we were not going to be able to survive losing that kind of money over time so and again the, the gap between the small and mar large market teams really started to grow in the 90s and even look at our, our own local situation john you know there was a time when candlestick was uh, in play in, in the coliseum and both teams were very good and both teams drew very well but if you also look at the geography of the bay area uh, they were on opposite sides of the bay and so depending on where you lived you know half the bay area was kind of equidistant to either one they built an amazing stadium right, right there in San Francisco that you could almost see from the Coliseum. And, and I happen to live in the East Bay. And, you know, this was always A's country for years. But now even in my own neighborhood, which is really the heart of our fan base, I mean, it's at best maybe 50-50 A's Giants fan right in my neighborhood. And, and I can even actually get to the Giants stadium almost as easy as I can get to the Coliseum. So that dynamic didn't help. And, uh uh, it help us, you know. Uh, so, you know, those are, there are a couple things and that have, I think, impacted, you know, our situation because people do look back at that time when we had the high payroll. Uh, and, uh, and again, the new stadiums, each one that came out, we became like pretty soon it was like, you know, just we were the last team standing us now in Tampa that didn't have a new stadium. So, and as far as my own future, I said, you know, listen, I didn't even realize this. And, you know, me, as you know, John, me and Brian Cashman are, are really close friends. And uh, we basically started the job almost identically. I, I think I'm a few months ahead of Brian. And I didn't even know that I think after next year, him and I are both uh, going to have the longest tenure with one team in baseball history, which wow. I, was shocked. I never, I never, never even thought about that. So, so whenever you've done something this long, at some point, you know, people are going to start to wonder, like, how much longer you, are you going to do it? And, and listen, there, there will be a time. I'm not sure when. I do love working for the A's. I, I love living in the Bay Area. I've still, you know, I've got three kids and two of them are still here in school. So uh, that will, you know, have an impact on, on my future. I, I love this game and I love working in this game. And and, uh, you know, when I'll, when I'll stop, I'm, I'm not sure, but I, I don't think I'll go on forever. Let's put it that way. And, and, and again, I, the other thing too, is I really love the people I work with. I mean, you're quite familiar with David Forrest and, mm -hmm. you know, I, I've got an amazing right-hand guy and I've had some great ones along the way and Paul D. Podesta and Farhan and, and JP Ricciardi and, 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 and David's been with me now for just like the 22nd year we've been together. So I feel very fortunate. I'm very close to him. So uh, you know, as long as he's here, he, he also keeps me very interested because we have such a 
uh, close relationship, but the day will come when, you know, I'll decide fly fishing in Oregon will be more. (laughs) (laughs) So, but it's not here yet. Okay. Very good. Well, Billy, we really appreciate it. I'm going to have one more question for you. You've been fantastic, very insightful as expected and uh, really appreciate your joining us. Um, But I mean, I should ask the question that probably everybody wants to know is um, Moneyball. I mean, I know you love the book. Michael Lewis did a fabulous job. He's an incredible writer. Um, Really, really interesting book. And, you know, I like the movie. A lot of people, most people liked it. They did a good job. And of course, Brad Pitt played you. So you can't complain about that. (laughs) Um, But, you know, people have, had some quibbles with the, the movie that it didn't, it kind of downplayed. You, the guy you talked about earlier, Hudson with Mulder and Zito or different things or it portrayed Art Howe in a certain way. Um, you know, what did you think of the movie overall? And did you have any thoughts that, that you might've done a little bit differently? Well, you know, listen, I think the other dirty little secret was this idea that we sort of like co-opted Michael to write a book, you know, that as smart as we are supposed to be, Paul and I, <laughs> we, he was really sneaky. We had no idea who was going to write a book. And, and it sounds crazy that that would be the case, but he did a really good job of sort of embedding himself, ingratiating himself and, uh, to us. And then it went from being what was going to be a, you know, a, a New York Times magazine piece to a book, but he never told us that along the way. So, <laughs> uh, so yeah, so it was very sneaky. But listen, I listen. I'm I feel proud and honored that somebody like Michael. And the, what I think is most interesting is you know you get back like what it missed out is like first of all the the team they we didn't win the World Series. In fact, we didn't get past the first round. So I think when people are sort of looking at the team and what they're sort of missing what Michael was writing about. He wasn't writing about, hey, let's glorify this team. He was looking at approaching problems and solving them in a different way. It really wasn't about, hey, this is the team and you know, this is the great, it was a great team by the way, but it wasn't, that, that really wasn't the point of the book. And, and the fact that we're sitting here in 2021 <laughs> and we're yeah. talking about it, to me is a credit to Michael and the impact of, of his words and what they've had on, you know, not just sports, but also in business. And, and again, that's, that's Michael's genius, not necessarily mine. Uh, Cause if I asked you, you know, what was, what book did you read three years ago, let alone what book did you read say 18 years ago? And, and so to <laughs> me, the, 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 the point of the book wasn't like, Hey, let's look at this team. This is a great baseball team and let's write about them. Michael, saw it as a, you know, you know, us or us in the organization trying to solve what seemed to be an unsolvable problem in a very competitive business. And, you know, also, you know, layered in there was obviously the use of, you know, analytics and data in a time when data wasn't really quite in vogue. Now we're all sick of data, right? That's all we hear about. And, you know, Michael was sort of the precursor. He was the first person I've ever heard use the term big data. In fact, when he said it, we, me and Paul, what are you talking about big data? <laughs> big data is ubiquitous in, in all businesses and in, in everything we do. And again, that was Michael's genius, not ours. You know, we were sort of the guinea pigs that he figured we were interesting enough and we we're stupid enough to let him write about us. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a fabulous book and you've had an incredible career and uh, Billy, we really appreciate you joining us on uh, Big Time Baseball. Thank you very, very much. And thanks, we Billy. will see you down the road. And for my sake, I hope to see you in the playoffs. Yeah, no, thanks, John. Tony, I appreciate it. We'll see you down the road.